morning. Good to see each one of you. Welcome to all of you that are joining us online. Well, we're here on this evening to worship our God. And that's what our first song says. God, we are here to worship you, to give thanks because of what you've done for us. Let's stand and worship him.
That is our heart cry. That's why we're here this evening. To worship you from the depths of our being. Because you are worthy of our praise and no no other is. So we come to declare your goodness, your greatness, to declare your name. Because you are our God. At your name, the mountains shake and crumble. Your name, the oceans roar and tumble. At your name, angels will bow, the earth will rejoice, your people cry out. Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name. Filling up the skies with endless praise, endless praise, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, O oh Lord. Your name, the morning breaks in glory. Oh, Lord. 
things that God has done for us are more than amazing. That's what this next song talks about. 
that he is more than amazing because he's the one that provided the way for us to the Father. You're the one who walked on water and you call the raging seas. You command the highest mountains to fall upon their knees. You're the one who welcomes sinners and you open blinded eyes. You restored the brokenhearted and you brought the dead to life. Sing that with us. You're the one who walked on water. You're the one who walked on water and you calm the raging seas. You command the highest mountains to fall upon their knees. You're the one who welcomes sinners and you open blinded eyes. You restore the broken hearted and you brought the dead to life forgetting all our sins you remember all your promises you are And you've set the captive free. You're the king who came to serve, and you're the God who washed our feet. You're the one who took our burdens, and you bled upon the cross. It's your kindness and your mercy, you became the way for us. Forgetting all Oh, that is not. 
song what you've done for us you gave your life you've taken away all of our sin we stand in your presence this evening as your sons and daughters clothed in righteousness and deeply loved by Father God filled with your spirit To be able to follow you, to be able to love you, to be able to declare that Jesus, you are Lord. So you are more than enough, and we rejoice in your goodness this evening. Now we look into your word, and we ask that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As we continue our study and our journey through God's Word, and we will uh, finish 1 Corinthians next week, and then we're going to roll right into 2 Corinthians, and then after 2 Corinthians, we're going to bounce back and do the Gospel of John um, and be able to continue that, that journey on. I know some of you were interested in getting baby bottles. I, I saw that there are some more, so if you're watching online or if you're here and you didn't get yours... I want to encourage you, there's some more available in the lobby. They're going to be due um, in Father's Day, that Father's Day weekend. So we want to encourage you to fill those out. Also a reminder, too, as we prepare for our trip to uh, Turkey, to the seven churches of Revelation and to Rome. The, the deadline is drawing close. I think it's June. We want everybody to get signed up. And so if you're planning on going, please check it out. We have information for you online or you can check with the church office. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 14. As Paul was addressing the question, what about our worship services together? When the church of Corinth was getting together, there was a, a conversation about tongues and how things were happening and such. And we started on it last week in the use of the spirituals or the spiritual gifts during the corporate worship settings. Now keep in mind, Paul is answering questions to the church of Corinth, and the church had written to him concerning these things. They were doing well for a while, but then they started falling into this sense of, of worldliness and carnality and, and such things in a manner that was becoming disruptive. Their worship services not only were disruptive, their church discipline was not happening like it should. They were taking advantage of the the... Lord's Supper and eating it inappropriately, and there was a lot, of, a lot of things that just needed to be corrected. When it came to their worship services and their gatherings, they were, the Holy Spirit was given to them, and they were using spiritual gifts, but it had gotten a bit out of control. And so last week we began our study in, in dealing with these gifts, and we last left off um, with verse uh, 31, 
And he said, earnestly desire the greatest gifts, and now I'll show you still more excellent way. They were desiring the use of the gifts, but they were desiring the use of the gifts for all the wrong reason. They were doing it for a sense of show. The use of the spiritual gifts in the corporate setting had become a, a, well, a public stage where they were exercising these gifts to be seen, not for the edification of the body. They were making church about themselves as opposed to about worshiping God and about the other. And so as Paul's correcting them, he comes to this, this chapter 13, and is going to show them a more excellent way, or the best way, the best gift, the best thing that you can move for. And 1 Corinthians 13 is probably one of the best known uh, New Testament chapters in the Bible. You've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 quoted at weddings um, quite often. Talking about love and defining love, it's quoted by, by believers and non-believers. It's interesting to me that non-believers will lean into this on, on the use of weddings, on defining what love is uh, within this. But we've got to understand that this, while it's a great topical um, passage on, on love and defining what love is, you've got to read it in context. Context is king when it comes to studying the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in between 12 and 14, which is all dealing with the spirituals and the spiritual gifts and the motivation that is used when the church would get together. And so as they're desiring greater gifts, they're in their mind, in their construct, the greater gifts was the vocal gifts, prophecy, tongues, um, and those such things. But Paul says, no, it's not. The greater gift that to be desired is the gift of love. It's the foundation that is there. And so he opens up with these three conditional clauses that are, that are there and, and really defines the motive of the church. What makes the church different than anybody in the world? And I've got to tell you, it's the foundation of love that God laid through His Son, Jesus. That God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. It is the whole foundation of the church. And so when the church would gather together, you've got to come from the position of the preeminence of love. Love is the foundation for which the church gathers and for, for us being together. And so in verses 1 through, 1 through 3, 1 through 4, we see this thing. He says, if I speak... Notice he says, if I speak, referring back to the use of tongues and prophecy. If I speak with tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have what? Love. I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have what? Love. It profits me nothing. So we start out with these three conditions and conditional clauses that says, basically, if you do anything without the foundation of love, then whatever you're doing is worthless. It has no value spiritually. And he starts out with the, the biggest contention within the church, tongues. He says, he says this with tongues. If I speak with the tongues of note, men and angels. The tongues of men is the learned dialect. So it was a spiritual gift 
Now, on Sunday, this last Sunday, we talked about the giving of the Holy Spirit. I love how God times out my studies for me. You know, he just, we didn't plan it this way. It just happened this way that the Lord would have us do Acts chapter 2 in the midst of the gifts here in the church of Corinth. In Acts chapter 2, we have the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, and the giving of tongues. Tongues, in the context of the birth of the church at that time, was known dialects. All the different lands, and if you remember from Sunday, the map that showed all the different regions that were all around Jerusalem, they were given the gift of tongues of men in order to be able to proclaim the gospel so that all those people from all those different lands, the Jews, would be able to understand. And so Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men, this, this gifting, or the tongues of angels. Now, what is the tongues of angels? The tongues of angels would be this heavenly language that was gifted by the Holy Spirit to individuals for the purpose of praise. It would be an uh, an unknown heavenly language that people couldn't comprehend, and we'll cover it in a minute on how it works. But the whole purpose of it was praise unto God. It would be man to God, and it was necessary, and it, it needed to be interpreted. And there's some rules that Paul gives for the use of these tongues. Well, the problem with the Church of Corinth is that they had fallen out of speaking in the foreign languages or the tongues of men, and they were honing in on the tongues of angels in their worship settings and their worship churches. Now, they didn't meet in large gatherings like what we have in this building here. It was all home fellowships. So can you imagine a house with like maybe 10 to 20 people all together and then in their worship service, and they're all speaking in this heavenly language all at the same time? Crazy. Now, he's going to unpack that in a minute, but he says regardless of how you use this gift, what is the foundation of it? What is the foundation by which you are, are using this gift? And, and so the first thing that he wants to set is this. When you are speaking, you've got to start out with love. Because if you're not starting with, out with love, then you sound like a, a clanging cymbal. You just sound like a noise that's going on. You know... I've seen kids when they get their first drum set at like five or whatever, right? Or my kids, when they were younger, you give them a wooden spoon and a pot. Lay them, set them up in the middle of the kitchen floor, and what would they do? Bang! Now, they thought that they were the hottest things in sliced bread. They're making music, and you're like, oh my goodness, what did I just do? Right? You give them a drum or you give them something to beat on and they just make noise. Paul says, if you're speaking this gift, you just sound like a noise. It doesn't make any sense. It, there, there's just no love in there. Then he goes on to the second if. If you exercise the gift of prophecy. Now, tongues would be the praise it would be the language or the message that comes from the heart of the individual to God. Prophecy, on the other hand, is the message from God to man. It would be known. It would be intelligible. It would be speaking forth the word of God. It would be prophecy can also fall into the category of, 
of knowledge and teaching. So when I take God's Word and, and I spend time working through God's Word, I pray over it, and then I put it together, and then I give it to you. That's prophecy. That's professing the Word of God to you. So it's from God through me to you. That's one form of prophecy. Another form of prophecy, especially in the, in the times here before the written Word, would be the divinely inspired messages that were given through those of authority to the church. You think about the writings of Paul. Paul's words as he would write them down in letter, or Peter's words as he would write them down in the letter, or Apollos or any other of the teachers, because they didn't have the written word, but they were teaching the doctrine of the apostles, and they would take the doctrine of the apostles, the teaching of Jesus put them together, assimilate them, and give them to people. That was prophecy. It was speaking forth the word of God from God to men. And it was always knowable. It was always intelligible. You, it was done in a regular language that everybody could understand. But notice in verse 2, it's not just prophecy. He says that within this, if I know all the mysteries of knowledge and if I have faith, the other two gifts that are mentioned in verse 2, besides prophecy, is knowledge and faith. And those are the three key elements that are, that are given within the, the collective of the church body. When they gather together, they gather together to learn God's Word, to understand God's Word, and to exercise God's Word. When we think about prophecy, it is the speaking forth of God's Word. Knowledge is the teaching or the unveiling of the mystery. The word mystery there in Greek is mysterion, which literally means the thing that was once hidden that is now revealed. Have you ever studied God's Word and, and you didn't really get it and then all of a sudden you read it and then it's like, oh, the light came on. How does that happen? Right? Did you just become super smart all of a sudden or what happened? No, it's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit reveals the mystery that once was hidden to you but is now revealed. It makes sense. Mysterion. So it's a work of the Holy Spirit that ends up happening. You're sitting in a, in, in a, a Sunday morning, Wednesday night or any other Bible study women's ministry, men's ministry, whatever. You're taking a look at something and all of a sudden they're covering a passage and you go, I get it now. I get it. How did that happen? That's a work of the Spirit. Unveiling that or this gift of knowledge. And then faith is the assurance of God's Word. Faith here also would be the assurance to perform the miracles, the things that God would do. So when we think about faith and the great faith, Praying for the sick, praying for those. So the church body would gather together. What would they do? They would come for worship. They would come for teaching. They would come for praying for one another, exercising the spiritual gift of faith, praying and looking for that healing and looking for that. But if you're not coming and gathering on the foundation of love, then guess what? It's worthless. It's worthless. It doesn't bring about any, any hope. And so, we've got, we got to understand, the purpose of the church gathering, and that's what Paul's writing, the purpose of the church gathering is so that the leaders who are stewards of God's Word will unpack the Word for your edification, building up, your exhortation, encouraging you to do the right thing. Consolation, in order to help you when you're feeling down, to encourage you and strengthen you. A lot of people will say, well, I don't need to go to church. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You need to go to church. You need to be in fellowship, regular fellowship. 
I love you all that are watching online, but I can tell you what, you are missing out tremendously. Because that's only a one-dimensional relationship. You're missing out on the encouragement and the prayer and the strengthening and all of those things. And so it's important for you to come into fellowship. The other thing that we've got to understand is the spiritual leaders that are here in Corinth, they were exercising their gifts without love. And, and I can tell you this. If you're a spiritual leader and you are not leading from a position of love, there's a great danger instead of feeding the sheep, you end up beating the sheep. You take God's Word and you can use it as a club or a means to your own end. In our day and age, have there been spiritual leaders that have abused people and, and, and created spiritual abuse using the Scripture to, to coerce or to beat people and to get them into subjection in their own way? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so within this, we think about the, the encouragement of Jesus to Peter. Do you remember after Peter was feeling down because he betrayed Jesus? Jesus met him on the seashore, made him some fish tacos alongside and said, hey, look it. No, it wasn't fish tacos, but did cook him breakfast with fish. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. What was the goal of this Peter as a spiritual leader? Who would preach, as we're going to study on Sunday, in Pen the message of Pentecost? What was his job? Feed the sheep. The gathering of the people in Corinth, just as the gathering of the church today, is for the purpose of ed edification, exhortation. And they exercise these gifts in a manner that builds up the body. The third if, he finds in verse 3, if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. There's a lot of philanthropists in our world today, isn't there? A lot of people got lots of money, right? They go to this charity, that charity, and all this other charity. But what is, what is attached usually to these big donors? Name recognition. I want this hall named after me. I want this building named after me. There was a church in Southern California where the pastor was trying to get people to donate a ton of money. And, and it had a tower made out of crystal. Well, it wasn't quite crystal. It was all glass. But I remember going there and, and walking along the bricks that would lead up and it was the names of all the people that had donated in order to be able to build that place. And in order to get your, your, your name on a brick, you had to donate $10,000. I can tell you what, that brick did not cost $10,000. But as you walk up, you recognize all of those names. Paul says, look it, if you give all your possessions and you have not loved, then that donation, that gift is worthless. If you're doing something... For, to be recognized, and, and it's not out of this position of love where you want to be able to, to love the person. Keep your gift. Don't give it. Because it, it doesn't do any good. It doesn't build up the body when you're robbing somebody, just saying, I'm giving this, now look at me. Jesus would speak to this in, in Matthew 6, too. He says, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues 
and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Don't give to be seen. Let God honor you. He says, even to the point of sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, don't sacrifice your, yourself or your body or these things so that other people, so you can brag about it. The problem that Paul is addressing is Corinthian pride in worship services, where they were drawing attention to themselves. Does that happen in our world today? Sure it does. Should it happen? No. No. It, it, it robs the body of unity. It creates elitism. Spiritual gifts are tools that God gives to believers, to the church, via the Holy Spirit, to build up the body. Whatever gift you have, and you all have a gift, whatever gift you have, your gift is not for your own benefit. Your gift, whatever that gift is, and some of you have more than one, is always, always for the other. And it's for the other in the corporate gathering to be able to build up the body together, to strengthen the body. So what is this platform of love? Verses 4 through 8. He says this, Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love is not brag, it's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecoming. It doesn't seek its own. It is not provoked and does not take into account wrong suffered. And it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now we look at that context and so Paul goes through and he defines love. In fact, he uses 16 different verbs to describe love. You know that love is a verb? Love is, by the biblical definition, love is an action. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. The problem is our world is determined that love is a feeling. I, I can't tell you how many. I've been in ministry now 34 years. And I can't tell you how many times in marriage counseling I've had people come to me and say, I've fallen out of love. No, you haven't fallen out of love. You're choosing not to love. It's a decision. Now, you may not feel it, but quite frankly, God says it's not about your feelings. It's about your decision. For God so what? Loved that He did what? Gave. It was an action. Love is, requires an action. It requires movement. A decision. It's not an affectionate element. And so what Paul does very effectively is he personifies it as if love was a person. If love is a person, this is what the person does. So if we read it that way, love as a person is patient. Love as a person is kind. This is what you are doing from that foundation. The word patient there is macro through male. Macro means big, right? Through male, like, like suffering or this, or I'm sorry, tempered, like tempered, through male. So the idea is that you are long-tempered. Long-tempered. Love, I am, I am making a decision to be long-tempered. It doesn't mean I'm going to be angry for a long time. Please don't know, that's not what it means. 
It, it means it takes a long time to set that temper off. Your fuse is really, really long. And, and so what love is, in, in the idea of patient is it, it takes an awful lot to get you to lose your temper. It is patient. Love is kind. Crestu, crestu meo. And so the whole idea is to act kindly. The interesting thing is patience and kindness are, are like two sides of the same coin when it comes to love. Whenever you find patience, you're going to find kindness. They are, they are two together. So because it takes you a long time to get angry, you are going to demonstrate kindness instead. Instead of the anger, you're going to be kind. They go together. They're joined together, two sides of the same coin. Paul uses these attributes to describe the church, that we should be patient and kind. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you not think lightly of the riches of His kindness, talking about God, and tolerance, and patience, do not, or not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you realize patience and kindness is an attribute of God? Aren't you glad that God is patient with you? And kind? When we think about that, if we are in the Spirit, if we are exercising our gifts from a position of love, then we are deciding that I will be patient and I will be kind. Whether you feel it or not, it is a decision. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. God's the standard, the love that God has shown you. I'll tell you this, before you get angry at somebody, take ten seconds, pause, and reflect on how God has been patient and kind towards you. And then from that strength, from that, that meditation, ask yourself, by what right or what privilege am I exerting to treat the other person less than God has treated me? I need to check myself within this. Then he goes on and deals with some negative verbs or some negative actions, or, or we would call these these to be uh, these these double negatives within this. In verses four through six, he says, uh, "It's not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant." And you see that "not" re- repeated over. Is not jealous. Zeloi is is. This idea of jealousy with zeloi, it is not envious that creates strife. In other words, you're not looking at somebody saying, I want what they have. Love does not say, how come they're getting it and I'm not getting mine? Ooh. Love does not feed into entitlement. Love does not look to, to create strife and that's what this jealousy does. You think about the first act of jealousy in the Bible. Two brothers named what? Cain and Abel. What was going on there? Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's was not. God went to Cain and said, Cain, hey, what's going on? Why has your countenance fallen? Don't you know if you will do good, you'll be accepted? What happened? He was jealous that his brother's offering was accepted and his was not. 
We know in Hebrews that Abel offered his offering in what? Faith. And so we see this example in the first murder of the Bible that comes out of this zealousy, and it was in a worship setting. Horrendous. Why? Because it's fleshly. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3 says, For you are still fleshly, and this is Paul earlier in this same letter, You are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are, are you not walking like mere men? When you become jealous of other people, and again, we're talking about the context of the body of Christ. We're not even talking about the world. We're talking about the body of Christ within that. So you're acting fleshly. And this jealousy that leads to sin and this sin that leads to infighting. Are there church splits in the world today? Sure. Why? You can always come back down to this envy and this strife. This idea of entitlement. We're going to fight about the color of the carpet. Why? Because I want blue and you want red, and I don't want you to get your way. Should not be. My brothers, rip out the carpet then. We'll all go on concrete. Call it good. But the deal is, we should not be fighting like this, especially as the body of Christ and be divided. Notice he says, and it does, the, the next negative does not brag. Or literally, does not put yourself above the other. Or the idea of heaping praise on yourself. The Corinthian church, because of their exercise of spiritual gifts, were saying, look at me. I got the gift of tongues. Wait, you can't start the service until I get there because the tongue speaker is not present. Or the interpreter is not present. Or this person. They don't brag on themselves. Or heap things on themselves, this, this praise. Look at me, I'm all of that. And it goes along with the next negative. It doesn't brag and it's also not puffed up, which literally means to inflate yourself. Are there spiritual leaders that are self-inflated? Sure there are. I'm a spiritual leader of the church, I deserve a jet. I read an article here uh, a number of years ago about a spiritual leader of a, of a mega church, and he was writing a letter to his board because he needed his jet upgraded. That's scary to me. And they were giving it to him. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. Crazy to me. Puffed up. The problem with arrogant spiritual leaders or arrogant people in the, in the church is they read their own press articles. And they start believing it. And it shouldn't be so. Love does not act unbecomingly. This is an interesting phrase because the idea is that love does not act in a way that is shameful or rude. Shameful or rude. It's the idea of being a public embarrassment or acting indecently. When the church gets together, you should not act in such a way that you're a public embarrassment to the church or act indecently or out of the, out of the norm, again, to draw attention to yourself. The original part of this was dealing with uh, acting shamefully in an incestuous social behavior. Church of Corinth was part of a cultic community, and it was not odd for them to have this incestuous relationships that were going on within 
the, the Greek culture in their temple worship. But the problem is, to bring that into the church is inappropriate. To act shamefully would basically says this, don't be having affairs in the church. Don't be cheating on your wives or cheating on your husbands and think that it's okay that you're hyper-spiritual that you're able to do this. Specifically, it was dealing with men and dealing with their virgin daughters. In the Yeah, ooh. But again, the Corinthian way was very stuck that way in their old culture. Don't act socially inappropriate. Love does not seek its own or self-seeking. The idea is seeking your personal benefit over the others. At the church potluck, don't take the big plate. Leave Pastor Kerry the chicken. You're okay. Love is not easily provoked or quick-tempered or angered easily. This is something else. He says, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Do you have a problem with forgiveness? Or do you keep track? If somebody has wronged you, are you keeping a scorecard on how many times you're going to allow this person to wrong you? Remember what Peter's conversation with Jesus was? On forgiveness? Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother that sins against me? Seven times? What did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. I know Peter. He would keep it up to what? What? 489, 490. You're done. See? I did it 490 times. That is not what... It, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Does God keep a record of your wrongs or does He forgive you unconditionally and cast your sins as far as the east is from the west? If God forgives you unconditionally and doesn't carry those record of wrongs forward, we shouldn't. But how many times in church fellowship and church structure do we remember all the things that people have done and carry it forward? Within that. All the times that they have wronged us. Just so we can be self-justified in our anger. It literally means don't calculate evil. Or counting the sin against the other person. And lastly, in, in this do not, he says, don't rejoice together in unrighteousness. Love does not take joy in the unrighteous acts or the wrongdoings. In other words, church, don't take great joy while other people are living in sin. The church of Corinth was having a problem with that. What was their problem? As we're going to cover it later, they had a guy that was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And in their pride, they thought that they were all that in being accepting and tolerant of the brother that was doing that. And Paul said, kick him out. Kick him out. How, how is it that you can take pride and joy in your tolerance of sin? Does that happen in the church today? Absolutely it does. Well, we want to be relevant to the world. We want to be accepting of the world. No, you're taking joy in, in, in this liberty of being tolerant of this sin when you shouldn't be. 
That's not loving. How is it loving to tolerate a guy who's having an affair with his stepmother? It's not good for him and it's not good for the new believer. That's not the loving thing to do. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to call out sin and discipline sin. It's loving to you. Think about your kids. Is it loving to tolerate their misbehavior? Or is it loving to discipline the misbehavior? Why? Because you don't want them to grow up rebelling against law and authority. So you want to be able to have that structure that's within this. Quite frankly, he says, love does not rejoice in immorality, but righteous living. So what are the positives? Well, we look at 6 and 7 within this, and, and it doesn't rejoice, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In other words, we rejoice together in the truth, in the righteousness. It's love that brings us together in the corporate worship as we worship God's way the right way. We bear up on all things. We put up with each other. I love it when the church puts up with each other. We are different people from diverse backgrounds. And it is loving when you bear up with everybody within their differences for the sake of unity. So what if somebody has a different worship style? You bear up with it. So what if somebody is sitting in your seat on Sunday morning? Bear up with it. You're like, no, I can't do that. It bears up with the differences in the diversity for the purpose of unity because you love them. And love believes all things. It's the idea of trust. You believe the best out of somebody, not listening to the worst. I want to believe the best. I want to, I want to hope for the best. I want my love to endure all things. The, uh, the idea of enduring is continuing while suffering and persecution and then love never fails. The triad, faith, hope, and love that provide the stability for the church. If the church worship is built on faith, hope, and love, like a three-legged stool, it will stand. But you remove any of them, it creates instability of the church. Love never gets tired of supporting. Love never loses its faith. And love never... Exhausts hope. I am, I am so sold out on, on hoping for people to change. And I've been told, well, why are you hoping so much? Well, because God waited for me. I believe that God can change the individual. Well, you're believing way too much. Not my problem. I'm believing that God can change that person. That God can bring us together. That there could be unity. Why? Because love does everything for the cause of the gospel. Everything for the cause of the gospel. As long as I have breath and as long as you have breath, our job is one thing. Share the gospel. And what's the gospel? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It is not the job of the church to sell people short. Not our job. It's our job to be together, and from the foundation of love, we love others. In Christ, there is no end to love. In Christ, there's no faltering of faith. And in Christ, there's no reason to lose hope. Why? Because God's faithful. 
You never stop loving in Christ. You never waver in faith in Christ. And you never lose hope in Christ. See, Carrie, that's really hard. In your flesh, absolutely. In Christ, there is no reason to give up. None at all. Why? 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul said it best. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How can we do this? Because if our foundation is in God and God is love, then we never have the ability to run out of faith, hope, and love. Because it all comes from Him. All comes from Him. Now, he goes on and talks about the permanence of love. If God is love, and He is, and we never run out of love because love never fails, verse 8, he contrasts the gift of the church against the temporal gifts that aren't eternal. And so he says this in verse 8, But if there are any gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there's any tongues, they'll cease. If knowledge, it'll be done away with. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then... I will know fully just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. The greatest of these is what? Love. So what does Paul say? Okay, Corinthian church, love never fails, but all these spiritual gifts that you are overemphasizing, prophecy, tongues, healing, all of these gifts that you are overemphasizing will stop when you die. When you leave this body, those spiritual gifts are no longer necessary. What is the one thing that God gives us that we take into eternity? Love. It's the one thing. That is, that's why love has to be the foundation and is the foundation. Because it is the one thing that carries us from the point of our transformation that loved us into the kingdom and we experience on into eternity. But if you're speaking in tongues right now in heaven, are you going to need to speak in tongues? Nope. Are you going to need to prophesy when you get to heaven? Nope. Are you going to need to do miracles? Is somebody going to be sick? You're going to have to heal them? Nope. All of those gifts go away. They are temporary gifts for the church, to edify the church now. But the one permanent gift that you get now that carries you all the way through into heaven is love. It's the one thing that connects our heart to God and our heart to one another. And so Paul emphasized this. Because now we only know in part, but when we get to heaven, that's all going to be put away. Our, our understanding is much like a little child. We're like little children. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, and I, I think like a child. I often think I still am very much like that. Reason like a child. When I became a man, I, didn't, I put away childish things. What's the contrast? The contrast is immaturity versus maturity. The same thing is in the mirror. The other illustration, the mirror. What they used to do in the Corinthian culture is they take metal, bronze, and they polish it up. Have you ever been to like a fun house? Like the carnival and the funhouse mirrors, right? You look at those. 
You look in the mirror and you go, oh, that's kind of weird looking. And you laugh about it, right? I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror and go, oh, and I laugh about it. But So they'd have these bronze metal and they would look at it, but they were not clear reflections. They were distorted views. In this world, we have a distorted view of everything that is spiritual. Why? Because it, we have a limited understanding. We don't know all the things that are there. But when we see God face to face and not through this like polished glass mirror reflection, then we're not going to worry about all this gift of wisdom, gift of knowledge. We're going to see Him as He is. Can you imagine what that's going to be like and how cool that is? When you finally get to see God face to face, His glory, His essence that's going to shine from the throne. We read in, in Paul's writings, we read in John's writing, and, and it is impossible for the, the, the temporal to describe the eternal and all the things and use the word like all the time. Why? Because we don't have words that could describe who God is. And all of that's going to be removed. But for now, quit being so prideful about what you think you know when you really don't know. How do I know that? Well, you take a look at your kids. If you ever think that you that you got a handle on life, ask a teenager their opinion. They'll let you know that you really don't know anything yet. Can I get an amen for that? For sure. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are, note, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You want to see transformation take place. Compare your life now to where it was six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, or whatever. You should be seeing a noticeable change. Why? Because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. When will that finish? It doesn't finish until you see Him face to face. When all this old junk is shed and you are created, recreated, and glorified. So what should I do now? For now, focus on love. Because all of these spiritual gifts, while they are good... They are tools to enhance the edification, the building up of the body. They're just tools. But always start with the decision to love. When you gather with believers, make that decision. I choose to love you. Does it mean when I, when I gather with believers in this building? Yes. Where else does it mean? When you walk through your front door with your spouse. Choose to love. Are you gathering with a believer there? Yes. Your husband or your wife, if they're a Christ follower, or a brother or sister in the Lord, and they deserve the same treatment that you would treat any other believer within the church. With the same respect. You focus on love. You make that the priority. And we continue to, to encourage that there is no greater thing that God has given to us other than love. In fact, it was the foundation. In Matthew chapter 22, 36 to 40 says this, as the rich young ruler came and they were talking about the greatest command, 
Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. We find that love is the foundation. That all activity within the church body exists. Because God loves us, we love one another. We love God and we love one another. That is our goal, that is our motive, our motto. Loving God to love others. Paul now comes back around to the one thing that was struggling with the church was struggling with the most, and we find that in First Corinthians fourteen. And that was this these vocal gifts that they were having such a hard time with. So he hones in on prophecy and tongues within this. If the gifts are there to build up the body of Christ, there are two gifts specifically that was causing the most problem. If you've ever been in a worship service where the worship service is primarily speaking in tongues without interpretation or people yelling out, thus saith the Lord this, thus saith the Lord that, thus saith the Lord this or that or the other. And all of these things, it can be very disrupting. Now imagine in a house where it's going on and the teaching isn't going on, it's just a bunch of people blabbing. That's a problem. And the problem is the tongues were being used for self-centered pride and building up the speaker. Love is the foundation of the church and teaching is the word is what builds the church up. I've had people ask, they say, Carrie, why don't we speak in tongues during our worship services? There's a lot of reasons, but primarily we're going to cover it here in 14 because the speaking in tongues in the corporate worship service has believers and unbelievers in the service with large numbers of people without knowing what the gift of interpretation is and all of these other things, and it can create chaos. Can you imagine 120, 130 people all speaking in tongues at the same time? How can that edify the body? How can that build up the body? It can't. Or if everybody, 120 people said, I got a word from the Lord. You think an hour and 15 minute service is long? Crazy. It doesn't work that way. So the gifts, prophecy and tongues, are fine in small group and home fellowships, but not in the larger corporate setting that's there. In the Church of Corinth, if they're meeting in a house, it still could be chaos even with 25 people. That's there. So Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, gives us the standard for corporate worship setting. Give priority to the teaching of God's Word. Why? Because the teaching of God's Word is what builds up everybody. And they can all understand it. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this. All Scripture. Question. What do you think all means? Okay. Just, just to make sure we're all on the same page. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here's the purpose. Hina clause. So that. Hina. That the man of God may be adequate, and you can put woman in there, it's fine, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The purpose of the church together is to edify, exhort, and to give consolation when we gather together to build up. The worship services have become a circus in the church of Corinth, a disorder where tongues and, and prophecy were, were out, of, out of order. So in verses 1 through 5, he says this, Pursue love. That's your premise. Yet, 
desire earnestly spirituals, gifts is implied, but especially that you may prophesy. Notice how he gives preeminence to prophecy built on the foundation of love. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Why? Because he's the only one that knows what it means. But one who prophesies edifies the church. Why? Because they all can hear. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so the church may receive the edifying. So you see how in verses 1 through 5, Paul says, the preeminence is given to what? Prophecy. The fourth telling of God's word. The fourth telling of the message from God to men. Why? Because that's what builds up everybody with understanding within this. On that foundation of love. Everyone can share without the need of an interpreter. And it's a clear message where tongues is not a clear message. Tongues, by definition, is a worship to God. Whereas prophecy is that message to man. And within that, that worship, that tongues, as he says, is a mystery. It's a mysterion. That which is hidden that has to be revealed. What's necessary for it to be revealed? An interpreter. Somebody that can hear it that has a second spiritual gift of interpretation to interpret the first. If there is no interpreter, as he'll cover in a bit, if there is no interpreter, the one with tongues should be silent. Because it doesn't edify. And he'll cover that in a minute. But within this, the one that is speaking in tongues is only building himself up. Why? Because the praise from his heart and his mind is going to God, but he's the only one that knows about it. So in the corporate setting, it doesn't benefit everybody within that. And so by design, the corporate setting is for the the edifying and the exhortation. Imagine going to a Spanish service. You're down in Mexico, you go to a Spanish service. And the whole service worship and everything is all done in Spanish. And you go in and you're sitting in that service. Are you going to be are you going to benefit from it? You, you'll know the music, but that's about it. Right? Why? Because it's done in a foreign language and you don't speak Spanish. So you're there, you're present, but you don't get it. Now, Having been in Mexico many, many times, what is often offered? And when I go to Romania and I teach, what is often offered? A translator. Why? So those that would speak Spanish and English can both be edified. So those that speak Romanian and English can both be edified. You see how it works together? But if tongues is expressed without the interpreter, then both are not edified. Only the person that understands what they're saying within that. So what is best? The best is to do the common language that everybody understands. Paul says that that I wish that you all would speak in tongues. But even more that you would prophesy. You say, well, what do you mean, Paul? You just said, well, tongues isn't the best. Prophecy is. 
he's implying, I wish you all had the capacity to be fully invested with all the spirituals. But because you're not, he's very practical. Not everybody was given the gift of tongues or the gift of interpretation. If everybody had the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation, would there be a problem? No, because everybody would understand. But because you're not, stick to what you know. Prophecy. Keep it simple. Keep it simple within that. And in the corporate worship setting, keep it simple so that everybody will be able to worship and no one is left out. The corporate setting of worship is meant so that everybody can worship together and build up each other and not be left out within that. So what does he do? He contrasts what is understood and, and what is edifying. Look at verses 6 to 19. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you another way by revelation or knowledge or, or of prophecy or of teaching? Which is going to be best? Obviously, the answer is going to be prophecy and teaching. Yet even lifeless things, either the flute or the harp producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinct distinction in tones, how will it be known unless it is played on the flute or the harp, the specific tones? Or a bugle produce a, a, an indistinct sound, how will it present him for battle? Bugles were used to call for advancements, retreats, and those kinds of things. So also, verse 9, unless you utter by the tongue's the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking to the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and to the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. In other words, we won't understand each other. Verse 12. So you also, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for what? The edification of the church. Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place with of the ungifted say amen at your giving and thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul was from the South. However... In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So what does Paul say? Well, he says, first of all, the, the, the whole idea is that the message of God needs to come with understanding. If, if Paul was to bring a message that you didn't understand, would it be any benefit to you? If I got up here and I read the Bible in Greek, which I could, would that benefit you? No. So bring it an understanding within this. God's Word is given by revelation to teach so it could be understood. Now, the problem is your mouth is an instrument. If Tom was to come up here and just bang out a bunch of notes that were random order, they could be notes, but in random order, would it be edifying? No. So he has a music sheet that says these are the notes. And they get put in order. And when you hear the order, what does your mind do? 
your mind agrees with it and you enter into that place of worship. Right? It's done with because you can follow the order. And so within this, we understand that we need to be able to speak in a language that is in order and tongues should be there. So what should you do? First of all, you should pray that there's another there that is interpreters. The gift of tongues should be intelligible. And within that, you should pray. And if you're going to pray, it starts with you knowing what you're saying. I've heard people say, well, I'm praying in tongues. Well, what are you praying? I don't know. Well, then that's not real tongues. That's you babbling. Tongues is a heavenly language that expresses the mind and the heart of a known statement. A known praise unto God. You need to pray before you open your mouth with tongues. And I do believe that people can pray and sing and or speak in tongues today. But you better know what you're saying Else, what are you doing? You're babbling to air. If it, you can't say, well, I don't know what I'm saying. No, you do. You do. You need to... God is a God of order within that. And then if there is someone that can interpret, they would interpret it. And so he says, therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue, pray that he may interpret it. He knows if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. And my, but if I don't know what I'm praying, then it's unfruitful for me and I'm not even edified. You get it? There's no edification there if I don't know what I'm praying. I'm just babbling. And then Paul says, give preeminence to the teaching. I would rather speak five words that you guys understand than 10,000 words in a foreign tongue. Why? Because it doesn't edify you within that. And so... His point was to, to avoid these public displays of confusion that was going on within the church. Lastly, in verses 20 to 40, he says this is the order. Here is the practical side of his message. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature, for the law is written... By men of strange tongues and the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then the tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to the unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say, you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters in, he's convicted by all. All what? All the words. He's called into account by all. All the words. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble each one as a psalm, as a teaching, as a revelation, as a tongue, as an interpretation... Let all things be done for edification. And if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two, three at the most. Each one in turn and must be interpreted. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself in God. In other words, use your inside voice. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must be, must be silent for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be exhorted. 
and the spirits of the prophets, note, are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches and the saints. And the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves, just as the law says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. Was it from, was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? And if anyone thinks he is a prophet or a spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But in all things must be done properly, decently, in, in a decent manner. So what is the order? Well, first of all, when you're using tongues in the public setting, you should make sure that, that you do it with maturity, not like a child. He quotes out of Isaiah 28, 11 to 12, and he says, Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and foreign tongue. And he said to them, Here is the rest. Give it to rest the weary. And the response and they would not listen. One of the things that we understand is this, that the practice of speaking in tongues in the known languages in Acts chapter 2 for the unbeliever drew their attention. You remember they came to him and they said, what is this that's going on? How does this happen? And it drew their attention. And they said, well, what is this? How is this going on? And then Peter preaches, as we're going to cover on Sunday, and 3,000 people get saved. What we see in Acts 2 is the application of what, Peter, what Paul is saying here. That tongues were given in a, in a known language. The men's hearts were convicted. So when you assemble, understand that tongues are there as a sign to the unbeliever to get their attention. Then when they ask, what is this? Now you have opportunity to prophesy, which convicts their heart. See the proper order? Within this. Tongues would be part of the worship. But for the believer, it's the sign of God's word speaking. So for the believer, prophecy is a sign to, the, to you that says, yes, this is the word of God. This is what I need to pay attention to. And you see the power of the word of God. The cumulative result is the unbeliever comes to faith. The believer is edified and all come together for worship. Do you see how that works? The unbeliever sees the power of God through tongues. What is this power? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the message, as was with Peter, who gave the gospel message and all were saved, which ushers in the ability to worship. But if there is no interpreter to bring light to the tongue to the unbeliever, then what are they going to say? You're nuts. You're nuts. You're crazy. He goes on after explaining that, and, and we understand that the whole concept of the tongue and the prophecy is to present a place of worship. And then we get down to 34, and before you women start stampeding the stage... Women are to keep silent in the church. Remember, we're talking about corporate worship. As they would gather in houses, and as women and people are coming to faith, what would happen is what we would call side talk. Have you ever been in a place where people start up conversations outside of the main conversation? Right? So what was going on in the houses? Well, the teaching was going on, the prophecy, and 
Honey, what did he just say? Well, Jesus died for, for our sins. Well, what do you mean he died for our sins? And then this side conversation was going on, whereas the husband who was supposed to minister to his wife, Paul says, do it at home. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the conversation the conversation. But what was happening was the, the women who became very inquisitive. They were asking their husbands, which they could. He says, just don't do that. Keep the side talk out of it. Now, I know that women are not the only ones that do that. I know an awful lot of men, especially on Wednesday morning men's Bible study. We start running rabbit trails and it takes us forever to get through a passage. And all you guys are giggling because you know it's true. Why? Because prophecy or the speaking forth of God's word is the most important thing without distraction. And everything in the assembly. And he says some people will have a psalm. They'll have a, a, a prophecy. They'll speak in tongues. They'll have an interpretation. All these things. He said do it decently and in order. You don't get just to, just to blab out whatever is on your mind. Do it decently and in order in such a way that the whole church is built up. We know you desire it, but again, the premise is the prophecy of God's Word. And then, it's not that I'm forbidding tongues, he says, but do it the right way. And I believe that is our cue for us as a church. We should do everything decently in order from the foundation of love in order that the whole body would be built up and that the unbeliever would come to faith. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can study your word. And, and Lord, I know that there's a lot in this passage, a lot about church order. And, and Holy Spirit, I pray you would bring to our, our remembrance those things that we've studied, the things that we need to know. And as we go out tonight, may we consider what it is that you're doing in us, that gift, that power, Lord, we know the most important thing is, is the giving of your word. May we be equipped for every good work. We praise you and we thank you for the opportunity to, to gather, to study your word, to know you deeper. Lord, I would pray that you would fall fresh on us, even now, Holy Spirit, and teach us how we can be those, those missional people in sharing your word, even to the lost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. With authority you've spoken And you set the captive free You're the King who came to serve And you're the God who washed our feet You're the one who took our burdens And you bled upon the cross In your kindness and your mercy You became the way for us Getting all our sins You remember all your promises You are amazing More than amazing Ever our God more than enough.
As we go about the remaining part of our week, we desire to bring you all honor and glory in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, and praise Jesus. We'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.